Hello and welcome to another patron episode of 80s All Over. My name is not Drew McWeeny and I am joined by my co-host, not Scott Weinberg. How are you, not Scott? Uh, I'm great. How are you, not Drew? I am great. My back feels great. I I'm not Drew, so I'm in a I'm in a wonderful mood, and I'm not going to do any impressions today. <laughs> All right. Well, then I promise not to sing. So we're good. We're set. We're good to we, go. Hey, not cool. People love my singing. <laughs> Drew, why don't you tell our listeners what our special event is today? Well, um, if you're a Patreon supporter, then uh, you have probably picked one of the three levels, either the Eddie Deason, the Dabney Coleman, or the Ty Webb. And as promised, we would like to have Ty Webbs on from time to time to talk about their reactions to the show, about what attracted them to the topic in the first place, and about the things that they've either discovered through the show or that they're excited about us getting to. So we have a Ty Webb supporter with us today. Please welcome Jeff Movie Man. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here. Finally, happy to finally get to speak to you too. Big fan of the podcast since I first discovered it, and just super excited. Well, let me let me ask you the first and for me the the biggest question is: You're 21 years old, so the topic in general, what is it about 80s movies that is attractive to you or exciting to you, or that made the podcast something that you wanted to listen to in the first place? Right, and, and a second part to that question. Who's funnier, me or Drew? Um, in answer to your second question, I can't pick. You're both hilarious. All right, all right. Well, ever since I was young, growing up, I've always been a big movie buff. I've I grew up with stuff like Indiana Jones and Back to the Future and all that stuff. So I had a bit of infatuation with those sort of '80s films. So I had a good connection with that sort of stuff, and then. After I was on Twitter for a while and I found you guys and I saw all your tweets and you, again, you were both really funny. And I found out you had a podcast about the 80s and I was like, ooh, this sounds fascinating. So I just listened to the first episode and I could not stop. I guess for you, a lot of this then is going to be discovery because these are things that, first of all, the context has got to be really um, uh, very different than your experience because, you know... uh, at, at 21, you really grew up in a very different era of what theatrical distribution was like, and home video has always been a given for you. So there's a lot of the ephemera of the show that I would imagine is just, you know, first-time stuff for you. Um, what movies uh, have you discovered through the show that have become part of your personal canon? Hold that. Hold that thought. That's our that's our golden question. I want to say that oh, okay. one. Yeah, yeah. Don't answer that. Don't, Don't answer whatever that. Whatever you yeah. do. <laughs> but no, I'm fascinated because, Jeff, I know you you were younger than me, but I didn't know you were like literally half my age. And that's awesome. That makes me so happy because we assumed that 90% of our listeners would be about our age and then a small handful of movie geeks would be like, well, I don't care if it's 80s. I don't care if it's 20s. I'm, that's, I'm interested. Uh, and, and as we go on, we're realizing that we have more more listeners under, say, 25 than I expected. And I am so glad. Oh, you're welcome. I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. That's It's just very rewarding to know that younger people like the show, too. Uh, you know, we wanted to, it to be both nostalgic for people our age, but also – Hey, it's just a movie review show. It, you don't have to be over 40 to like this show. And so the fact that, you know, somebody just so so young and handsome likes our show, it's very. It's... <laughs> well, I'm flattered. Yeah. What's, what other movie podcast do you like? 
Well, I mean, I honestly don't listen to that many podcasts per se, but I've listened to How Did This Get Made a good bit. And funny. I've uh, honestly, I don't listen to a whole lot of podcasts. Wow, even more flattering. I love it. We should have him on every week, Drew. There you go. <laughs> I wish. Why don't we, oh, Jeff, do you have any questions for us? Well, yeah, I would think listening to the show, is is there, so, is there something about the show that you wish you were getting more of? That's a big question. Is there information you don't feel like you get, or is there stuff that you wish there was just more of because it would help you with what you like about it? I have an idea of what Jeff is longing for, and we all know... It's me, songing for... We <laughs> can do plenty of that. Jeff yeah, but... wants more singing in the show. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I don't really know how... Uh, to be honest, I think what you offer on the show, whether it be from, like, all di- different histories behind certain movies or your personal connections with them from your childhoods, I think there's plenty of variety in the show. And I honestly couldn't think of there being more that... I could ask for. It's just so good. Um, have there been guests that you've been excited by? Because I, I, the guests have been all over the place, and I'm still trying to get a, a reaction on what people. Because I, there are people that I would love to reach out to. I was watching a movie this morning uh, against all odds, and one of the camera. I was looking at the credits at the end, and Rob Hahn's name went by. And Rob Hahn is a cameraman who became a cinematographer who I knew really well in the early '90s. I want to reach out to him and try and get him on the show because that guy was on a million and four sets and I would imagine has stories that we're never going to get from, you know, movie stars and things, a different perspective. I really feel like with the guests, the, the biggest thing is, are we getting a broad enough range? And I want to keep adding to that. Well, I think you're getting plenty of range. I think you're doing good with Branch Gout from stars to screenwriters to other people who are fans of movies, who do other podcasts, that sort of stuff. I mean, Jeff, I have a question for you. Jeff, do you think that the show has too much fucking profanity? Not at all. God damn it. <laughs> all right, Jeff, you know what you've earned? You've earned a special impromptu sneak preview. Drew McQueenie, give me 30 seconds on slapstick of another kind. Oh, my God. Um, it is easily the worst film I've come across yet on the podcast. And it's not just the film itself. It is the naked contempt that the movie has for its audience, and for anybody who might even accidentally have to process five minutes of it. It is a contemptible, horrifying film. That is off the top of his head. Drew and I were talking about other scheduling issues, and he goes, by the way, have you revisited Slapstick yet for the show? And I said, no, I've ha- I literally had nightmares about this comedy when I was a kid. It's a Jerry Lewis movie. And it's really obscure, and it's literally one of the worst films ever made. And Drew said, I think we should maybe do a bonus episode just on this movie. It's that. Oh, it's if I, if I could get the guy who directed it to come just describe what horrifying blackmail pictures he had of the people involved with it. Just I don't need to see the photos. I just want to know what was in the photos because there's no way these people agreed to this of their own free will. While you're Jeff, while you're while you're talking with us, look up on the t- Google slapstick of another kind. All right. And there's oh, only yeah, one photo. You'll see that one photo 4000 times because that's all that exists. You'll get a, a one frame, a one frame uh, a, a photograph snapshot of how atrocious this movie is and yeah i remember you mentioned it when you were talking about uh the other jerry lewis movie hardly mm-hmm. working 
Oh, yeah, man. early on. And those look those look great by comparison. Our generation only knew Jerry Lewis basically from cracking up, hardly working, and this movie, Slapstick of Another Kind. You show a Jerry Lewis to my mom, and she could name five great Jerry Lewis movies. So it's just interesting how you react to a, a movie star based on like your age. Oh yeah. Uh, and like oh, and it's yeah. it's true. There's a lot of people that that <laughs> like the early ni- early 80s on Golden Pond was a big example where that was my real introduction to Katherine Hepburn and it was weird then going back and really twigging into the rest of the work like as I got older. Lawrence Olivier in Clash of the Titans. Oh god, yeah. You're like, "Oh, yeah, he's pretty cool." And then you're like, "I'm 10 years old." And then the more I read about Clash of the Titans, the more I realize Oh, this guy who played Zeus is like the greatest actor of all time. I did not know that. Oh, he's famous, famous. Yeah, yeah. he's super oh, okay. famous. <laughs> On the other hand, you have the I have no oh, son. <laughs> That's on that end yeah, of the keep, spectrum. Keep that one in your pocket. That is good to bring out at parties. And uh, yeah. Are you training to be a rabbi? Because that was impressive. I was I, <laughs> I felt I felt uh, like guilt for a second. That's how good your your rabbi was, your <laughs> rabbi voice. Yeah, but I was going to say about the Jerry Lewis thing, I guess what you said about growing up, those kinds of movies, I guess maybe it depended on the availability of parts of his homography about the, back then. I mean, back then in terms of video and what was around to see, like when I was growing up, I knew Jerry Lewis from The Nutty Professor mainly. Well, good. Then you had a better Jerry Lewis upbringing than I did because I think uh, Hardly Working was the first Jerry Lewis film I ever saw. And uh, and I had trouble. My biggest problem was I couldn't connect the two. Like there was the Jerry Lewis that was on the TV that was on old movies. And I would watch the Dean Martin Jerry Lewis stuff anytime it was on like, like on Saturdays or after school. Those were fun movies. But it had no connection to the horrifying nightmare creature that kept showing up in theaters when I was a kid. And I really had a hard time connect, like believing that that was the same Jerry Lewis. And look, we all go through it. We all have a a continuum in terms of where we jump on board with actors. And the fun of it is, for me, going through those periods where, and a lot of the 80s, a lot of my impression of the 80s was home video stuff where I was going crazy on filmmakers from the 70s or filmmakers from the 60s and 50s and catching up on stuff. So that's a lot of my memory of this time period is just mainlining like three weeks of Warren Beatty movies and three weeks of Jack Nicholson movies. And half the time it was something would come out in the theater and there'd be an older person whose career existed before I got interested in film and the new movie was where I go, okay, now I need to go back and, and figure it all out. Right. Like when Police Academy came out, I wanted to go and, and dig up the complete works of George Gaines. Who didn't? George Gaines. A very, very, very funny actor. Uh, Punky. That's all right. I can relate with that because I feel that way about certain people like, you know how in the, the first example I can think of is like after I heard Paul Newman in Cars. I got curious about his past career, like Butch Cassidy and Towering Inferno and all yep. that stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's the. Uh, I noticed that about uh, Robert Redford as well. I when he showed up in Captain America and in Pete's Dragon, I thought, all right, well, you know, two or three generations know Robert Redford, but now a fourth generation knows Robert Redford from Pete's Dragon, and and uh, will now like when they're twenty five years old. We'll go, oh, I love that actor from Pete's Dragon and dig into 20 other films he made. 
That's well, this happened the other day on Twitter, Scott. You mentioned something about Tim Conway, and, and you did not realize, nor did I, that there's a generation that's connected to him because of SpongeBob SquarePants. Like, I would have never guessed that he had that many young fans, but there was some new thing that he that connected them to him. So that's yeah, great. Yeah, it makes me so happy, and it often sounds like a backhanded compliment, but it is not. It is. Huge compliment. I don't care if Tim Conway was on one episode of SpongeBob and that was enough to bring in young fans. Uh, th- that to me is is beautiful. I think it's I think it's a great thing that, you know, uh, great performers, uh, you know, at, at the end of their career get to star in a kids movie or something adventure movie. And then all of a sudden they have a brand new audience that when they get a little older will embrace that person's work. And it happens with writers. It happens with directors. And it's, it's part of the movie obsession that I love, you know, uh, that, that you might go like you say, Oh, Paul Newman. I know he's a super famous actor, but I only really know him from like cars. That's it. I better delve into this. And then, uh, you know, uh, a month later, you're a lot smarter because you decided to delve into, uh, you know, a, a filmmaker you didn't know all that well. And Drew and I have done it hundreds of times. I think most movie geeks do it. You go, oh, wow, I loved uh, Real Genius. What else has Martha Coolidge directed? You know, and you just go and you dig up their work. Uh, yeah. You know, that to me is one of the best processes of being a movie nerd is going through your binge moments. Like for me, it was film noir where I'd only seen three or four film noir titles, but I liked them and I wanted to be erudite. I wanted to be able to speak about film noir titles. So over the course of a year and a half, I saw about 75 of them and had a ball. Let me ask you, Jeff, what was your lightning bolt moment? What's your big moment that you realized movies were the thing or were one of the things for you? The first time I saw Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. I mean, Ooh, okay. I grew up on Indiana Jones. I, I mean, ever since I went saw you know, that stunt show at Disneyland, and I found out about the movies, and I watched them, I was hooked. I mean, considering the stuff in Temple of Doom, I was kind of young for that, but I wasn't phased. I just, I loved seeing everything that happened on screen, and more than that, my mom always talks about how I was always curious about like the behind the scenes featurettes about how they made these movies and everything. So I was really into movies as an art form from a very young age. It's uh, these are, these are kind of fundamental films now that are being handed down. So your parents are probably closer to my age uh, or, or a little older Um, or younger or younger. Yeah. At this point. Yeah. Probably even younger. God damn it. Yeah. That's Uh, that's about right. Um, So you're, so this is them handing their culture down to you. How much of it feels to you like they, you've got to like what I like and how much is just, these are the things we enjoy and we're going to share them and maybe you'll like them too. Do you ever feel like they, cause I work really hard with my kids to try not to push my stuff on uh, like make it available, expose them to things, but not push it. So they have to like what I liked. I think it's the latter. I think, I don't think at all. It's like they're forcing this upon me. I think they're just sharing stuff that they grew up with and they think I'd really enjoy like I remember them lovingly just like fondly recommending back to the future to me like oh like they said I mean I was really into Jumanji at the time and they said it was on par with like that in terms of I don't know I was just into those kinds of movies at the time I grew up those back to the future and the Goonies and Ghostbusters and all that stuff those fundamental 80s movies so I guess those were 
the stuff they introduced me to, and I never felt like it was being spoon fed to me. It was just. Have you uh, have you taken anything from the show back to them? Have you shown them anything or asked them about anything that you've found because of the show? <laughs> like, hey mom, have you ever seen Porky's? Oh hey, mom, god, are you a used cars fan by any chance? Like, I there are. Yeah, I've actually, <laughs> I actually have shared some stuff I've watched nice. because of the podcast. Like, I remember I watched used cars with mom and. We had a blast. I am so excited to hear that. That's awesome. Um, so, yeah. So if you could, if there is uh, just a short list, things that you, because of the show, discovered that are now movies that really you are passionate about or that you'll share with other people, because that to me is the strongest thing that the show can do is is have people pass a film on then. Oh, yeah, yeah, Jeff, I think you're you're a very uh, I think your story among younger listeners is pretty common in that, you know, the classics and you obviously know some of the other like B-level ones. But being 21, there has to be a lot you don't know. So you probably listen to an episode and you're like, I know half of these films, the other half I don't. And of those half, I want to see five of them. Well, in terms of things I've discovered that I didn't know about or wasn't really aware of for the longest time. The first thing that I kind of remember because you guys had discovered, I mean, Twice Upon a Time, I knew that film existed beforehand, but I kind of forgot and never really knew what exactly it was or what it was like. Then I heard you talk about it. You talked about the unique animation style and everything. And I got curious and I watched it and I was just enraptured. Like, I love that movie. Are you an animation fan in general? Oh, absolutely. I love nice. animation. Nice. Yeah, I love the the weird little animated films of the 80s are, are some of the real fun discoveries or the fun ones to talk about because they are so weirdly released. And I think people saw covers sometimes but never saw the actual film. I know we got, a lot of people got back to us about Rock and Roll, which they were aware of, sort of, but didn't really know what it was. And I, I'm... That's a fascination of mine. Like I, I'm fascinated by the idea that we've never really had anybody challenge Disney. That and at that point in the '80s, it didn't even look like Disney was still intact. Like animation felt like, what's going to happen? Is it even going to continue to be a theatrical thing? Yeah, that's so, another thing that fascinates me in particular. Like Disney in the '80s, like like you've said, like they were just in a rut in both animation and live action. And that's the sort of era of them that fascinates me a lot. Especially like when they were trying to appeal to adults more. Like I'm an outspoken. Black Cauldron was a little dark, you know. Yeah, um, I'm an outspoken fan of the Black Hole. By nice. the way, oh, you, you like the Black Hole? Oh, I fan. Despite its flaws, I mean, I very fond of that movie. Good, good, good. I like. I'm not, but I like when people are. <laughs> um, what what I like though is like you know I I think that that era it also is fascinating, mostly because, well, Disney wasn't churning out many good things. When they did, it was something unique, like Never Cry Wolf. And uh, what's, what Droop touched on is, nowadays there's, you know, there there's major comp- competition for animated features. There's Blue Sky, there's Laika, there's DreamWorks, you know. But back then, Disney, some independent companies, and once in a while, Paramount or Warner Brothers would dip their toe into it as if Disney was saying, hey, that's our party. You can't, you're not invited. Yeah, I think it was just a state it was in for a while. Like, it was like coming, slowly creeping out from like, there was virtually like no animated film in like the 70s. The And the stuff that was, I'm, I'm, the I have had the, 
hardest time tracking down a couple of movies. The Mouse and His Child. Oh, that's on YouTube. And you could watch it in bits and pieces and things. I would love a beautiful restored version of that so that I could look at the animation itself. And then the one that drives me crazy because there's no good version of it. And I want a chance to just look at the actual work in pristine form is the Richard Williams feature uh, Raggedy Ann and Andy. First movie to ever give me nightmares. Oh, understandably, that movie is... And a- it is beautiful. It is absolutely a wonderfully animated film, but it is weird. Beautifully animated, but otherwise it's a mess. But it's like a freaking LSD nightmare of a movie. And as somebody who has taken LSD, I can I can confirm that statement. Oh, yeah. I, Richard Williams <laughs> is... I. We'll, we'll get to Roger Rabbit, and we'll probably end up doing at least one special episode about Richard Williams and about his particular take on animation because I know you, you've teased me a little bit, Scott, and deservedly about my obsession with animation and whether it's done on ones or twos or how the actual animation style is approached. But Richard Williams literally wrote a book, a textbook about how animation is supposed to work. And I have it. It's one of the greatest books I've ever read about. Uh, the animator's guide to survival. It's, it's his, his book is so brilliant because it, it breaks down how animation is different than live action and how animation has to work in order to convey to the audience some sense of life. And when you look at the work he did on Raggedy Ann and Andy or uh, the Pink Panther openings, or especially when he got to Roger Rabbit, his insistence on that, that only working on ones, making sure you animate every frame individually, making sure every bit of performance is in control of the animator uh, pays off because his animation has a life and a vibrancy that is hallucinatory at times. It's really unparalleled. There's nobody else like him. His brain's a little cra- it's a little bit cracked, and that's what makes him such a brilliant animator. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I'm obsessed with that film. I can't wait to get to Roger Rabbit because yeah, that was one of those moments where I broke a little. I went crazy for that movie that summer. Yeah, Raggedy Ann, it is up on YouTube in parts, in widescreen. I think someone, the guy who did that fan restore, fan recut of Thief and the Cobbler, right. he pulled it from a 35mm print, which is the best version, of the best looking version of the film out there. It's, I did not know about this. I've only seen the older ones that were like really tough to look at. Like the Cropped pan and scan VHS. There's stuff. only two directorial features where Raggedy Ann and Andy and The Thief and the Cobbler, and it's it, Thief and the Cobbler, as Jeff can probably tell you, is infamous for the what 20 some year uh, post production problem. Or Yeah, it's a tragic labor of love for Richard Williams. And, and if we're on the level of the Jodorowsky's Dune inspiring oh. Star Wars and Alien, uh, there is a film to be made about the debts owed to Richard Williams and Thief and the Cobbler by another studio. Now, uh, yeah, I, when, I will Alan. not be revisiting Raggedy Ann and Andy. Uh, I just, I know it is pure nightmare fuel, and I don't mean it in a bad, <laughs> I, I don't mean it in a bad way. I just mean that there is something weird and unique about that animation style it's all very squishy and squishy and uh yeah i i i wouldn't call it a bad movie i just call it a bizarre movie and uh it has its moments yeah 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 what what do you do when you've seen a film that you don't like and you hop up on twitter and you find out you're in the minority what do you what how do you handle that well i mean i mean i don't really try and act like 
anyone who likes it is wrong. Like, I just say, I'm just like, really? I just don't see it. Like, this might be a hot take, but and I may need to watch it again to really have a second opinion. But first time I watched Saturday Night Fever, I was not into it. I, I, I see. I can get that. I totally get that. You know, it's a character piece of a kind of unlikable guy. And if you're especially if you're younger than this character, you might look at it and go, I don't admire him. I don't care if he succeeds or not. Uh, so if I don't care if he succeeds, where's the you know, I could see that, you know, it's a character study. And a lot of times if you don't connect to the character, then the movie doesn't work. Uh, did you give it a, a second shot or is that still how you stand? On? I haven't yet, but I do plan on watching it again sometime and seeing how I feel then. Jeffrey, let's move on. You already you've mentioned a few films that you uh, you watched thanks to the show. Uh, keep going. What else you got? Well, first and foremost, Popeye. I freaking love Popeye oh, so, so much. True. We're starting a cult. I know we are. I know. And th- you know what? If this is the cult, if like a hundred years from now, there's a Popeye cult that has a continent that they've taken over and it started with this podcast. I'm good with that. All right. Well, Jeff, yeah. you know why we love Popeye. So like, oh, tell us why a 21 a year old non-cynical movie geek loves Popeye. Well, I mean, I just went into it because like, honestly, you couldn't make this kind of movie the way a Robert Altman did today. And no one other than Robert Altman could have done it the way he did. It's just Robert Altman literally brought Popeye, the comic and the cartoon to life. Like and it's just, it was just amazing how he did it and the le- the scale on which he did it. I love that the sets are still standing. It It is a life goal at some point. If I am going anywhere near that area to take a day trip to look at those sets. Yeah, me too. And the Harry Nilsson music is fantastic. And the Harry Nilsson music, of course, is fantastic. I proudly own the soundtrack on my iTunes. It's wonderful. And Robin Williams, Shelley Duvall, the whole cast are great. And it's just a wonderful movie. And it really got me curious about Robert Altman. And I've been on a Robert Altman binge lately. I've recently watched uh, Nashville and McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And The Player is up next on my list. You're in for a treat, man. And you you couldn't have chosen much better uh, Altman to start with. And to all you people out there who hate Popeye and think it's a, a blight on the, uh, on the musical stage or whatever... Even if it's garbage, it turned this guy onto Robert Altman, and like that's the beauty of gateway movies. I love well, it. I would, I would think that if you're a real, if Popeye really hits a chord for you, and then you go and you look at the rest of Altman's work, my guess is you're gonna like the rest of Altman's work because it is so very representational. Like if you like the way he creates Sweet Haven, and then you turn around and you watch McCabe and Mrs. Miller. That's going to feel very familiar to you. The town, the town that they create, and the brothels, and the settings in McCabe and Mrs. Miller, and the world that Julie Christie and Warren Beatty inhabit, and the way they inhabit it, the way it feels like everybody lived in their costumes and slept in those sets, and and probably stank the way they would really stink, and like all of that, that tactile thing, they're they're the same. And so I would think that it would be very much a gateway movie as opposed to a one-off where it's not the director's style or it's really not his signature and he kind of made a mistake. Like, Krull is a really hard case to make for Peter Yates. 
you can't really point at the rest of his career and go, you'll love the rest of his career if you love I got Crawl. one, Drew. I just watched it last night. Nobody ever watched Crackers and thought, I'm a Louis Mal film. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love Louis Mal. I'm, oh, I'm, man, I'm, I got to go have, look at the rest of this guy's work now. I have one note for Crackers. It was, Louis Mal directed this after my dinner with Andre? I know. Oh, God. I know. It's, here's a sneak preview. Donald Sutherland, Jack Warden, Sean Penn. Uh, uh, it's and it's a, an unofficial or un, uncredited remake of Big Deal on Madonna Street about a bunch of misfits who are going to rob a pawn shop. Everybody credited above the title is atrocious. The only good person in the movie is the person billed eighth, and it is Christine Baranski. It's the only film I will bring up when I meet her. I'm going to walk up to her and say, we got to talk crackers. And if she doesn't blush, we're on. It's going to be a good conversation. She, I mean, there's one scene where she is wonderfully, very sexy. But the point, even she plays a meter maid cop and she's like the only funny thing in the she whole film. She owns the film. Yeah, she owns the film. She's the only good thing in All the right, movie. Well, we got to save this for our next episode. Crackers, yeah. don't watch it. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, there's an endorsement for you. Um, no, it's true, and it's and that's why I'm happy to hear that. Like you went to the rest of Altman, or that that helped get you like more interested in the way he made films. Clearly, if you fall in love with Popeye, part of falling in love with Popeye is the process of Popeye and that that weird world that it takes place in that feels so very authentic. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I I'm I'm delighted, man. I I have talked to a couple of people that. Because of this, went and, and because of the show, went and watched it again or watched it for the first time. And there are very few films that are going to make me smile more if somebody got turned on to them because of us. Yeah, it's a, just wonderful. All right, Jeff, what yeah. else you got on your list, man? Uh, I have Midnight Madness, not a fan. Uh, it's very sort of stand. It's again from that run of Disney movies where they tried a bunch of different things and they tried their hand at their animal house. And like this, you said, because they were Disney, they were even afraid to do that, really. Drew likes yeah, it a bit more than I do, so I'll, I'll cede to him. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough movie to like as a whole. And the little bits and pieces of it I do like um, remind me of how hard these ensemble comedies are to pull off. These ensemble, wacky, everybody running around doing 50 things comedies yeah. are. Matt, Matt, um, Matt, Matt World really nailed that on the head. It's hard to spin those plates, man, and and get everybody, give everybody something funny to do. Make sure everybody's a character that registers in some way. It's it's tough for the most talented of filmmakers. So yeah, it's it's not surprising that so many people took their runs at, and that's one of the things we'll see over the course of the rest of the show is people taking their runs at these classic iconic accidents, where then they try to reproduce it and they just bounce off the wall. And we're going to see that over and over with the Porky's ripoffs and with the Raiders ripoffs and with the Road Warrior ripoffs. And and I I get it. And it all ends up feeling to me kind of like the Raiders kids. But for a while, you could make a living doing it. Like in the 80s, you really could just make a, a living ripping off every couple of years is a big hit. Uh, we're about to see the Terminator come out on the show. And oh, my God, there's a million of those. So. Ooh. Uh, also, next to me, this blowout. Holy crap. I am so happy I finally got around to watching that movie after hearing you talk about it. It is so good. I think, so from what I've seen of De Palma's films, easily his best movie. It is an ace in the hole for film nerds and film critics because 
when you recommend Blowout to film nerds, not only are you sure they're going to like it because it's a good film, but it has so much movie nerd stuff in it that movie yes. geeks will like it and then go, Weinberg and McWeenie, they know what's up. Jeff Movie Man, he knows what's up. He didn't just recommend yeah. some thriller. He recommended a thriller that a movie geek would like. And blow the, the film nerdiest film nerd, nerd punchline punch of all time. time. Yeah, Blowout's mm. amazing. And Jeff, be honest, what do you think of the location in Blowout? Oh, I think it really... I haven't been to Philadelphia, but I think it... It makes great use of every all of its locations, and okay. I wouldn't mind visiting there one day. Drew, let, let's just uh, can we talk about Philadelphia for the rest of the show? Of course. Well, founded in seventeen. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> I, you know uh, what? That might be a good bonus episode of just eighties movies shot in Philly. You'd have to do a whole separate podcast. You'd have to dedicate a whole episode to the Rocky series. Oh yeah, well in the eighties especially. Yeah, yeah. What's your favorite Rocky sequel, Jeff? Um. Two. Good call. Good answer. Thank you. Intriguing answer. Why? It's definitely the best sequel. I mean, yeah, the rest of them are liked. all cartoons. Oh, the rest of them. The rest of them are definitely cartoons. Four is my least favorite. I have a. I have a liking for five. Like, can I ask you guys why don't people like Rocky Five? I I have an answer, but I will have to revisit the film because I remember seeing it and not liking it, and remember thinking that. This kind of uh, beautiful, graceful story has now kind of devolved into a, 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 an alleyway brawl. And that's like I expect a little bit better. Um, I, I, but I haven't seen it, Rocky Five, since it came out in theaters. I think Rocky Four is where it gets re- into really cartoon territory. My, my answer for why Rocky Five doesn't work for people is because I don't think he lands the father-son punch he throws. Mm. I think I know what movie he thought he was going to make. I don't think he made that movie though. Mm. So I haven't seen yeah. Rocky Balboa yet, but I, I, this this is going to be controversial because Rocky Four might be the prototypical, ultimate, defining film of the 1980s. In every not 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 that it's not that I think it's good, but just that it in a way kind of has an encapsulation of everything that represents the 1980s. I can understand. Yeah, that. and if you were to study editing. Um, and this sounds like a joke, but it's not. If you're studying to be a film editor, I would honestly show, tell you, watch Rocky Four because it is virtually a 90-minute montage. Yeah. Well, and if, the, if there was an Oscar for most editing, yeah. Rocky Four yeah, yeah, no, won. I'm not saying it's something that an editor wants to emulate yeah. or, or avoid. No it's, no, it's fascinating. No, you're right. It's 100% montage. It is Laney Riefenstahl in its subtlety. Like, it is super super aggressive about its commercial style and i think that that and and telling things in sort of super truncated music video for it's fascinating man i don't like it but i kind of like watching it does that make sense like i don't think it's a good movie but there's something it's it's, it's it's a fun bad yeah it's definitely fun bad and i can see how rocky fans love it i just think that it's like by the time they got to Rocky Four, it was let us suck every last drop of humanity and h- humaneness and just warmth and character out. It is now just boxer v boxer, and it's there's no subtlety, there's no human touch. It's it's very cold. Mm. Moving on, like also on De Palma, I watched Dress to Kill. Man, that was great. I watched that with my mom, which was kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, that's a crazy. That's, that's a crazy movie. And I love, it felt like a whole Hitchcock homage with a mix of a giallo. Yep, yep. 
I, that's an accurate description. What are your thoughts on Keith Gordon's performance in that film? Oh, great. He is a highlight. I love Keith Gordon. I, I, he's great in Christine, great in the small part he has in all that jazz. He's just great to see. He really is one of those guys who, because he ended up becoming such a good filmmaker as well, I'm so happy that that the second act of his career went well, that he turned into a good filmmaker. Because I loved him as an actor, thought he was underrated, thought he was underused. And then he made that transition. And man, I can't wait to talk about that beginning of his career when he starts to find his voice in the late 80s. He's one of those guys who's exciting whichever part of that career you end up talking about. Next on my list, we get into some bad territory. I watched Saturn 3. What the <laughs> hell is that movie? Oh, boy. Wow. Um, hey, okay, so that's a movie with some weird dubbing. Uh, oh, my God. Why? Weird, weird why dubbing, right? Why did they do that to Harvey Keitel? Harvey Keitel is just dragging Farrah Fawcett down a hallway, <laughs> and then next cut out of completely freaking nowhere the robot appears like boom and then he just decapitates harvey Keitel, and it's some of the worst edited <laughs> stuff i've seen yeah it is a terrible movie and uh stanley donan's sub- next film is called blame it on rio oh god i've heard you say oh it's, it's coming uh, it's coming it's We've, a we're, we're a month and a half away from it but moving on to s- if people thought drew was unkind to some of the lower sex comedies that we've covered already, I think it's safe to say this is going to be a volcanic eruption because this is one of the most reprehensible movies ever made. Ever made. It's ever made. (laughs) But moving on to something much better, next is American Werewolf in London, which I adore. It's fantastic and such an odd movie. When did you first see this? Just recently? Uh, a while back, several months back. Okay, okay, because uh, you know, that makes me very happy, but this is a horror movie that I saw, gosh, when I was like 12 or 14 and made me what I am today. Uh, what, what is it that you love specifically about Werewolf? I think how well it nails the line between horror and comedy. It's just like, it's a genuinely frightening movie and also a genuinely hilarious movie at the same time. Um, that's an exciting one to have just seen for the first time. Like, yeah, time. I'm like, a little envious and a little surprised, but yeah. How, how for you, how does the magic of the film work? The, the transformation stuff and the sort of look and feel of it. Well, I think it's just such well done makeup and effects on behalf of Rick Baker. It's just so well done. And the, the contrast between the comedic moments and everything just really makes it so much more memorable. Like the, Griffin Dunn's uh, dead makeup throughout the film. His, every scene Griffin Dunn is in after he gets killed is gold. I think one of the original, that was one of the performances that installed in, in me the sense that, oh, there are scene stealers. There are people that show up in movies, murder, and then just get out. And that's all you remember at the end the first time is, who was that? That was amazing. And Jack is that role is built for that. For that. And ba- and back then for uh, for for movie nerds like us, all it took was, oh my god, that's Jack from American Werewolf in London, and then we would see After Hours and that's it. You're a Griffin Dunn fan forever. That's uh, two movies. That's all it that's takes. That's how I felt like same thing with Jenny Agutter. I I liked her in this and then I was surprised to see her in Logan's Run later on. Next on my list is the jazz singer. Um, I just context. I'm a huge Neil Diamond fan. I saw him live last year for my birthday. 
one of the greatest nights of my life, and he's amazing at that. Cannot act to save his life, though. Like, every time he says a sentence, he sounds like he's about to cry. And even when he's supposed to be sad, he can't convince me that he is. I just remember the first time I saw it, and jaw on the floor, watching with some friends, it got to the scene where they're having a celebration, and they're having a party in the living room, and it's oh, him and God, Lucy Arnaz, scene. and they're marching around, and they're banging on, like, pots and pans, and... <laughs> And I turn to my friends and I'm like, have any human beings ever celebrated anything this way? What fucking lunatic directed this scene and was like, yeah, that's it. That's what a party looks like. Go. Perfect. Roll. We just got fired. I've been to some pretty elaborate and traditional Jewish festivities in my life. Ain't seen nobody ever break out a wooden spoon and a pot to bang on. Last thing I'll say about Jazz Singer, the blackface scene. Yeah. Just why? Startling. Well, yeah, it's obviously, I mean, it's a, it's a reference to the original jazz singer and all, but it's still a... <laughs> and a, and a very ill-considered reference. Yeah, like you would be like, yeah, let's figure out a way to reference it in a historical context, but not actually do it. How about that? How about have somebody go, well, I know one way and look, we could get in there and look at him and go, no, dude, no, move on. No, or just, no. yeah, it is a remake. You could just not do it. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Next on my list is student bodies. Um, mm, didn't hit for me. There was one or two bits that make me chuckle a good bit, but, eh. If you had seen that movie when you were like 12 and then it vanished, nobody ever talked about it ever. And it became like this urban legend. I agree. It's not very good. I think it's pretty funny in some parts, but there's just something about it. Like, like an archeologist wants to study a certain scroll. And he wants to know the origin or she wants to know the origin of that scroll. And, and other, other scientists are looking at the pyramids and they're looking at these other relics. But I'm just fascinated by student bodies. I want to meet somebody who worked on this movie and find out what happened. Alternatively, you don't really get an opportunity to go through that now where movies disappear the way they did for us because there's such a mechanical regulatory idea about home video and about stuff showing up a certain amount of time later. And you know, based on what studio it is, if it's going to go to Netflix or Hulu, or if it's going to be on like movies don't disappear. You don't have the opportunity to lose track of something for 15 years. ago. Yeah. You just nailed, um, sorry. You just nailed what I was going to say. What, what film in the last 20 years has more or less kind of just disappeared. And that it doesn't really happen much anymore. That's how I feel about Twice Upon a Time. Like, it's this movie that just nobody even knows about. It's just, like, virtually unheard of to people. And I think, considering how fascinating of a movie it is, I think I, that kind of sucks. There's a lot more of those kind of I think of the only reason that, the only thing that saves it from complete obscurity is, of course, that it has George Lucas's name on it. So when you yeah. have hardcore... Star Wars fans, be they old like us or young like you, when you become a Star Wars nut, anything with George Lucas's name becomes maybe not I'm going to see it immediately, but it becomes, hmm, George Lucas produced this in 1983. That's interesting. And they dig it up. So I would say it probably ranks among his most obscure uh, productions. And I'm really yeah. glad that you liked it. And I'm really glad that we keep banging the drum for it, because I think animation fans in particular will appreciate uh, Twice Upon a Time. Yeah, God bless Warner Archive for putting it on DVD. It looks great. Uh, next on my list is Hide in Plain Sight, the James Con James Con sole directorial effort. Well, this was actually one that my mom was 
uh, saw first. And then she said, maybe we should watch this together. Uh, well, I think I mentioned it to her. We were listening to the podcast in the car and I think she heard you talking about it. And one link that to another and we watched it together. Oh, okay. Wait, wait, let's it's send okay. a sh- I want to send a shout out to Jeff Movie Mom. Thank you for listening as well. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, but no, no, you liked Hide in Plain Sight, which is interesting because I don't think as a younger person I would have been into it. Yeah, I mean, it's okay. I mean, there James Caan makes some interesting director choices here and there. I mean, and he has great chemistry with the kids. He's really believable with that. Beyond that, I, nothing really to write home about, honestly. It feels like there was a rite of passage in the early 80s where every single star of the 70s who had spent that entire decade doing blow off of the back of extras on sets in Mexico suddenly had to prove that they could also make a movie with kids. It, everybody yes. did it in the first three years of the whole 80s. A whole lot of kids. It's a whole lot of kids in there. Uh, but yeah, next on my list is Gas and Jesus Christ. Yeah, now that's you really did the legwork if you found that one. And I, uh, there I are mean, certain it's things readily that, available up on the Internet Archive. And yeah, which all cropped, but still, I, I do love that you've you've made use of things like the Internet Archive, because that's important. The, the, when these things commercially slip out of viability, when nobody gives a shit or the rights aren't available or they become mired in some weird legal limbo. I wish there were more places like the Internet Archive and that they were better at filling in all those gaps. Yeah. In fact, like I just I there's a reason I just woefully watch these terrible movies. I mean, I I do movie reviews on YouTube now and then. I haven't done one in over a year, but I am planning some. Oh, it's it's something called the Real Obscure Show, R E E L, as in film reel. I've done three episodes so far. I've done one on Raggedy Ann, one on Popeye, and one on Orca, the killer whale, which I also love. No, dude, if you haven't done one in over a year, just based on this conversation, I think you should get back into that. You're, you're, yeah, you're I'm working you're, on it. I'm working on a review of Twice Upon a Time right now. Yeah, you discuss films uh, well. You, you clearly know what you're talking about. You've done your homework, uh, you. you know, and uh, you have a real passion for it, which is the most important thing. If you don't, you know, if, if you're not really passionate about discovering films, whether they turn out to be good or bad is kind of beside the point. But if you're really passionate about discovering obscure films, that's that is value because a lot of uh, review podcasts and a lot of YouTube channels are either making fun of bad films, which is fine, or they're reviewing very well-known films, which is kind of dull. So when I see somebody reviewing Raggedy Ann and Andy, a musical adventure, most movie geeks will go, huh, interesting. You know, it's a fascinating yeah, movie. Curiosity. Curiosity is one of the key things you better have if you want to do this. Because really, it's the only reason to do deep dive stuff. Mm. It's the only reason to go for is if you genuinely have a curiosity that's going to. And I, I, it sounds like from the stuff that you're interested in, it sounds like it works this way for you. For me, growing up, I would see something and then it was following the dots backwards. It was, okay, well, now I. And man, it was so much more work because first you had to go figure out who all the credits were and you had to find a way to track other credits back and you had to really do legwork to the imdb is god's gift to movie mm. nerds because you can lose yourself down a rabbit hole of careers and end up with a thousand on one hand you, you want to be see. like an old uh, like a snooty old elitist and go when i was a 21 year old movie geek i had to keep a list of altman features because i didn't know where else to keep know exactly what he directed <laughs> you know and, and and that helped make me such a crazy movie geek 
And then you would say, nowadays, all you got to do is look it up on IMDb. But the, the disconnect there is the, the ease of finding the information doesn't make somebody less of a movie geek. Well, and it yeah. also doesn't make them more of one. I, I you, it, you still have to be curious. You still have to want to go find this stuff, and that's what I'm. I'm that's why it's exciting, Jeff, to to meet you and to to have you be one of our Thai Web supporters. And you know, it's I. I'm glad that you're helping to sponsor the project so that we can get to the 1989 December episode, which is you know the the end goal. But at the same time, I'm, I'm going to be so sad when that comes. Uh, but at the same time, it feels like the feedback loop is working because I'm now excited for you to start digesting movies and then seeing what you do when you talk about them. So I'm I'm good. Thank you very much. Yeah, man. I, I oh, to you and oh, to, to you and all our patrons. Uh, you know whether you donate a dollar a month or twenty or whatever, you really we appreciate it. Well, thank you, Jeff, for for making the time today. Uh, Scott, thank you for being here. Oh, absolutely. Thank you both. All right. Thank you, Jeff Movie Mom, for being so supportive of your son's crazy movie habits. And I bet you one day when he becomes a successful filmmaker, you will be glad that you let him stay up one night to watch Orca past 1030. (laughs) Uh, I I saw Orca when I was like 20. (laughs) I didn't discover it that early. But, but um, I get your point. Yeah. And uh, as always, please spread the word about the show. If you if you like the show, play it for people who haven't heard it before. Um, leave us reviews on iTunes and ratings. It helps more than you know. And uh, we will uh, see you with January 1984 very, very soon. And uh, the rest of what should be one hell of a year. Mm-hmm.